Let me invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10 as we continue our study in this book. Now, there's a typo here. You'll see, you'll notice it says we're going to read through verse 12. We're actually going to read through verse 18. I hope that's okay with you. If it's not, uh, you're going to need to be okay with it anyway because it's what's going to happen in the next few minutes. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 We'll begin in verse 1. We'll read through verse 18. We've been talking about the uh, sacrifice of Christ, been talking about the tabernacle. We've been talking about all the Old Testament things. And now we come to the sacrifice of Christ, the fit body that God has made in the sending of his son. So let's hear from the author of Hebrews. Let's hear from God's word, Hebrews 10, 1 through 18. <clears throat> Let me again remind you that we come to hear not just me talk. We come to hear God talk. Let's listen to him. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible, impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, or therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me and burnt offerings and sin offerings? You have taken no pleasure. Then I said, look, I have come to do your will, O God, as it's written of me in the scroll of the book. When Jesus said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to law. Then he added, look, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which cannot take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I'll make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray and ask his word to endure in our hearts this day and this week. Father, we come to offer. We come to offer ourselves. We come to sacrifice ourselves. And yet, Lord, we pray that you would show us that that kind of offering and that kind of sacrifice is not what you desire. You desire something greater. And what you desire, you provide in your son. Show us Christ in his glory right now. We beg and pray. We plead and ask in his precious name these things. Amen. 
there's a certain person who doesn't like the book of Hebrews. There's a certain type of Christian that doesn't like reading through this book. A certain type of person who really loves stories about Jacob because it's cool. It had mandrakes. We'll find out next week. There's a lot of making fun of things. There's a lot of mockery. You know, the, the Old Testament had a lot of good stuff in it, a lot of interesting, engaging uh, stories. But you come here, and it's hard to understand. There's a lot in it about Jewish things. A lot of the rituals, ceremonies, the Old Testament. You got to know what a guilt offering or a sin offering or a burnt offering. You got to know those different differences. You know, there's a lot of discussion here about uh, dealing with sacrifices and priests and temples. There's a kind of person that comes with and says, just give me Jesus. All this rigmarole, all this about the Old Testament. And I've hope, hopefully, if you've been with us, you've seen, we've tried to see at least, that we should never feel that way about this book. Not just because it's the word of God. Yes, it is. Not just because we're Christians. Okay. But we should love the book of Hebrews because it deals with the most basic human issue that we can ever confront. It deals with the most basic issue, which is this. How do I deal with God? How does God deal with me? How do I relate to God? How does God relate to me? It's easy to say, well, you know, the Jews back then, they were, they were different. We're, I'm not a Jew. We're Gentiles. They had their weird thing going on. I just like Jesus. No, no, you can't say that, friends. Because as different as the first century might have been, they were humans too. They may not have had electric lights and flushing toilets, but they were humans. They had flesh and blood. They bled, you bleed. And the Jews knew in their heart of hearts, they understood that there were times they didn't feel close to God. They understood their own temptation to be evil. They knew it. And like people today, they tried to cope. Like you, they tried to cope with the guilt. Like us, they tried to cope with their inadequacies. I guess the first thing you want to ask here is how did they try to cope? How did people try to get right with God? You find it all over this text. You find it all over this chapter. Sacrifice. People try to deal with God via sacrifice. What does that mean? It means you give God something. Or you do something for God. You give God something. You do something for God. And particularly if the gift is really costly, if you give something really precious to you, or if the action costs a lot, you got to sweat it out, you got to work really hard, all the better. And in the Old Testament... In the Old Covenant, they literally gave sacrifices. What did they give? They gave their animals. The bulls and the goats don't pop out of nowhere. I think sometimes we, we think they kind of disappeared in the middle of no, out of nowhere, and they just gave them. No. These were their goats. These were the ones they've raised. They, had na- they gave them names, like any family would do that loved their animals. They named their bull. I don't know if they named him Bully or like I would do Goatee. You had a Y to the end. That's most of my nicknames. I don't know what the names they gave, but they, they then had to take their animals and offer them to God and kill them. Now, that's one more reason why we think this book is really irrelevant because we don't do that today. You're not bringing your dog and your cat. I'm not bringing my dog in to church to do that. We're not doing that today. But the principle is the exact same one. We just guffy it up. For us, the principle of sacrifice is the exact same. 
We give something that costs us a lot to deal with God. For some of us, it's, it's very religious activities. You go to church, you, you go to uh, some sort of religious conference, you read your Bible, you read your Bible a lot. Or for others, it's making promises to God. You say, look, God, I'll do this. I'll try harder. It's stopping that one sin. If you can just stop that one sin, if you stop being an addict, then you'll be good. So you, you try really hard to do that. Of course, others believe if you give money to the church or money to your some charity. Still others say, hey, kind actions are the way to go. Be a decent person. Just be a good person. All of this will please God. All of this will please God. And just because we're here on the evening service does not mean that we are somehow immune from this tendency. It is a universal instinct. Every religion in the world has it. The way to be right with some deity, some God, is to give something. And the Jews argued, well, God told us to do this. He had. The Old Testament is filled with all sorts of very precise commands for these sacrifices. The animals that had to be brought, which ones, depending upon how much money you have, when they were to be brought, where they were to be brought, in almost bloodthirsty detail. It's very obvious. One way to be right with God is to give him something or do something for him. That's how they cope. That's how you cope, if you're honest about it. Why didn't it work? That's really what this chapter is about. Why is this approach, this is verse 4, why does verse 4 tell us this approach did not work? It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. I mean, when you just think about it, isn't that true? Let's say you commit some crime. We saw the cop cars on the way over here. Let's say uh, they, they stopped the criminal. They stopped the bank robber. What the bank robber said, you know what? I'm going to make up for it. And he grabbed, he grabbed an animal and he killed it in front of the cops. You think that would solve his justice, his legal issues? I don't think so. What does a goat matter in the whole scheme of things? How can a goat make up for your evil? It's a ridiculous idea. Try, try it. The next time, boys and girls, you disobey your parents. Try pouring out a cup of coffee or tea for your sin. See if that'll work. It won't work. It doesn't work. That's why in verse one, we're told, the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. A shadow. I mean, that's what the Jews must have thought if they were seeing every day the goat being killed, the bull being killed. How can an animal actually do this? How can an animal take away sin? You know in your heart how hard it is to make up for things that you've done wrong. You do something wrong. It's hard to make it right. It's not easy to make it right. Occasionally, it's easy. When I make a wrong turn, and I blame my phone, even though I know it was me, really. Sometimes I notice it fast enough that I can make a U-turn and get back on the street. Sometimes it's easy to reverse gears. Most of the time it's hard. Usually you can't do that in life. You say you're sorry to somebody. That's what we teach our kids to say, right? You're sorry. Say you're sorry. Ask forgiveness, and they do that, and that's good. But does it make it up? Does it make it up? How can a murderer make up for the dead life? 
the life that's been snuffed out. And if that's true for people, if that's true in our you know, horizontal relationships in America with other people, how much more so for God? How does going to church and reading your Bible make up for disobeying God? How does doing what you're doing right now, what we're doing right now, how does that make up for disobeying God's law? It does not work. And the author of Hebrews says, this is why these goats and bulls would never, never really do anything. He says, look, um, they're continually, verse, verse 1, the same sacrifices are continually offered every year. They can never make perfect those who draw near. Verse 3 tells us that in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin every year. The very fact that these animals were killed over and over and over and over again shows that they could not do it. Every time the Israelite came with a sacrifice, she was reminded of her guilt. Moreover, what what does God himself say? Verse 5 and verse 6. What does Psalm 40 say? God doesn't want it. God doesn't want it. I'm not pleased when you burn an animal. I'm not pleased with sacrifices. Even now, we, I say that and you hear that and we read that. And any devout Jew hearing those words would be shocked because God himself had said, do it. God had commanded these sacrifices to be made. But the psalmist says, He was not interested in them. If you need more quotes in the Bible, I'll give you more quotes in the Bible. Psalm 51, 16. You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I bring it. Isaiah 111. God says, I have no pleasure in the blood of lambs and goats. By itself, a dead animal, its lifeblood pouring out from its throat means nothing to God. The blood of an animal does not atone for his sin. It does not satisfy It does not make up for human injustice. Why do I go on about that? Because the reality is, you don't even go that far. You're not killing anybody to try to get right with God. You're not killing an animal to try to get right with God. You're just spending money. You're just spending a little bit of time. You're just, you know, really trying to pray hard. You're just trying to do whatever strategy you have to cope with your guilt. That's what we do. We always try this. Whatever technique you've perfected to cope, whatever, uh, what's the phrase, uh, uh, self-love we have today, uh, whatever focus on me time we have today, whatever techniques we use in terms of putting you right with God, God doesn't care. He does not care about what you do. He does not care about what you try to give him to make up. It's worthless. doesn't matter how hard you work doesn't matter how much you try to make God happy. It will not measure up even for the tiniest of sins. Because he says, even these animals that were killed day in and day out are but a shadow. They're but a shadow. He doesn't want it. No matter how much you are devoted, no matter how earnest you are, no matter how well-intentioned we are, no matter how much we give our money and help the poor and promise we'll do better next time, it's never good enough. That's why this text tells us that these ways do not work. It is impossible. Verse 4, it's impossible. It's not somewhat possible. And I suppose the worst thing about it, that you know pretty well, 
is that if you try a self-coping mechanism, it only works if you live in denial. It doesn't satisfy your heart. So what does God do? We see how they tried to cope. We see how we try to cope. We see how it doesn't work. And now we seem to see the way that God provides. It's in verse 5. Another comparison. In, in one, uh, in the first part, what does God not want? He doesn't want any more of the animals. He doesn't want any more of your resolutions that this time you've turned over a new leaf. You'll really change because you're really, really sorry. No. Either the body, a body you have prepared for me. Verse 6, so verse 7. I have come to do your will. A body you prepared for me. I've come to do your will, O God. God has a will for sin. God has a plan for salvation. There is something that satisfies God, even as there's something that he doesn't care about. There's something that satisfies him that he loves, that will deal with the problem, that will make up for your sin and our evil. Sacrifices are not his will, but something else. I have come to do your will, O God. His will is tied up with this mystery guy in Psalm 40. Whoever says, a body you prepared for me. Whoever says, I, I, I have come to do your will. Whatever is written of me, about me in the scroll of this book. This person who comes in a special body. A fit body prepared by God. The person who comes to do God's will regarding salvation. This person, this one who is written about, prophesied in the scriptures. Well, who is this person? We're told in verse 5. When Christ came into the world. Here's what he said. When Christ came into the world, here's what he said. You know... In our usual rotation of songs, we sing Psalm 40, usually to the tune of Before the Throne of God Above. You may not have connected it with this quotation here, but the Bible does. And I wonder, maybe the next time you sing it, the next time it's in our rotation, you could think about the fact of who's singing this first. Who sang these words? The I. Who sang these words? Jesus of Nazareth sang these words. How many times have you sung Psalm 40? I waited on the Lord. He heard my cry. Jesus Christ. He sang these words. The one who was born in Bethlehem. He sang these words. The one who came to earth to do God's will. He sang these words. Verse 5. He said it as he took on the fit body prepared for him. Do you understand how much there is just in the Psalms that we overlook? Jesus Christ talks here. Now you note that verse 9 tells us there's a contrast. There's a first and a second. There's a first and a second. There's a contrast here. There's a contrast from a system based upon sacrifice to a different system. We're told in verse 9, he does away with the first in order to establish the second. What is that? What does that mean? It has something to do with this whole question of God's will. That's what he says right in verse 9. Behold, I've come to do your will. 
So something about God's will is involved with this new, new system, this new way of dealing with sin. We're told clearly in verse 10. By that will, we have been sanctified. We have been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Here, here, here's the nugget. Here's the kicker. Here's the different system. The different system, God's alternative, God's will is the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all. You see, God does not care at all about goats and bulls. He does not care at all about your attempts. They're a shadow. The real delight is the Son of God to come and go to the cross, be hung at Calvary, joyfully do it as the spotless lamb dying in the place for sinners. And he goes on in verses 11 to 13 to kind of nail down the contrast between the system that we prefer and the system that he prefers. The the one that we prefer and the one that he prefers. He says in verse 11, Day after day, the priests are there. Day after day, they're serving. Day after day, they offer the same animals. Day after day, they do the same worthless activity. You know the definition of insanity. Do the same thing over and over again. But this time, it's going to be different. No. No. That's insanity. The only sane God, the only sane one in the room, Jesus Christ. What does he do? Verse 12. He offered for all time one sacrifice. For sin. He offered for all time one sacrifice for sin. And then what does he do? He sits down. Verse 12 says, Jesus Christ sits down at the right hand of God. Why does he sit down? Because he's done with his work. He gets Labor Day off because he's labored. He's offered himself. He's given the ultimate sacrifice. He's not insane. And part of the definition of sin is insanity. You keep doing the same thing. You keep offering the same petty, pathetic attempt to soothe your heart, to get over the guilt, to get past the shame. You keep trying it. I keep trying it. But what do we have here? Jesus Christ, the only sane one, offers himself. He doesn't have to keep trying to atone for your shameful past, and that means you don't either. doesn't have to keep trying to atone, to deal with your present problem. That means you don't either. This is what God wants. Not an animal, but a person. He wants a perfect sacrifice. He wants a human being, not an animal, not some good deed, not money offered as if God could be paid off like some corrupt politician. He he wants a, a human being to pay in himself the penalty for human sin. He wants a human to offer himself entirely, mind, heart, body, soul, strength, all that he is committed to God fully to lay himself down at the altar to pay as the sinless one. To pay as the infinite one, to take on our flesh, to suffer your pain, to suffer your agony, to go deep into your shame and guilt, and to exhaust them all before the throne of grace. That's that's the satisfaction that God has. That's why God can delight in this one. 
How could God ever be satisfied with the blood of some goat? But how could God not be satisfied with the blood of his own son? We're told here there are two ways to try to deal with God. Two ways to try to relate to God. And this is what makes the book of Hebrews so relevant, as the kids say. You can come to God with your offering, or you can come to God with God's offering. The two ways. You can come to God with your offering and try to massage, you know, the issues you have and paper over them and shield yourself from him. Or you can come with God's offering. You can come with your sacrifices or with his sacrifices. And if you come with your own, let me just warn you, you'll never measure up. You'll never be happy. You'll never satisfy him. These are words that are designed to call you, to call us, to stop our tiny good deeds that we think are so amazing. You know, that, that time that you read the Bible for more than 10 minutes, you really meant it. That time you prayed a really long time and you, you, you really were trying to pray hard. I'm glad you did, but God is not pleased because you did that. He is either already pleased with you for Christ's sake, or he's not pleased at all. Those are the two options. These words are calling us to look to Jesus Christ as the sufficient, perfect sacrifice for your sin. To trust the Savior who didn't die for the good people. He died for the lost. He didn't die for the smiley people. He died for the sad people. The problem, of course, is that these Jews were scared. They were scared to give up their traditional temple. They were scared to give up their traditional sacrifices. They were scared to give up the community they had. But these words say those were only a picture. Now that Jesus Christ has come, why try to go back and do it yourself? Why go back? And what is true for the Jewish Christians is true for you. Why go back to try to deal with God and relate to God based upon your own external poser sacrifices. God is not pleased with the forms of purely external religion. He wants the heart. He wants the heart. Now notice, this is what Jesus Christ does. We find here, verse 10, by that will we have been sanctified, we have been made holy through the offering of the body. How can you be made holy? How can you actually be positively made holy? Because what did Jesus Christ do when he offered his body? Notice the offering of the body. Jesus Christ did not give a thing to God. He did not give money to the Father. He did not give 30 pieces of silver. He didn't do a thing for God. He gave himself to God. He was fully consecrated to God. He was perfectly in the love of the Father, and the Father was pleased with his beloved Son. That's why God's not interested in our um, merely external sacrifices. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, 1, we are not to present our actions, we are not to present our words, we are not to present our thoughts, we are not to present our flesh, we are to present ourselves, all that we are to him, in view of God's mercies. It's possible to be a Christian who knows I'm justified by faith alone. It's possible to be saved in our way of talking. 
but then to fall back into the old way of giving stuff to God, doing things to others, for others, to make sure he knows how good we are, but never give him ourselves. That's why we get this this strange phrase from Psalm 40, back in verse 5. A body you have prepared for me. A body you have prepared for me. You know, in in the ancient world, slaves would get their ears pierced to show they belong to their master. The idea was that the the person became uh, someone who had listened always to their master's voice. And there are some translations of this, verse 5, that, that communicate the fact that you've given me listening ears. And I'm not sure they're great translations, but it's an interesting thought. Regardless, what has Christ done? In his entire person, he becomes the one who responds to the Father. He says, my meat and my drink, my food and my drink is to do my father's will. God wants the whole person. He got it in Jesus Christ. And because Christ did that, because he did it for you, he can change you into that as well. And not just to make you somebody who gives part of yourself, who gives a bit here and a bit there. He doesn't just want your prayer. He doesn't just want your praises. He doesn't just want your gifts. He doesn't want your service, your time, your money. He wants you. He wants you to offer all that you are. That's impossible in one sense. How can we ever hope to do that? I think we get two encouragements here at the very end of the chapter, the very end of the text, rather. You might ask yourself, if all of this glorious thing is true, how can I ever even start to do it? How can I ever give all of myself to God without trying to make him love me? We get two encouragements here. Verse 16. It's a great quotation from Jeremiah. Chapter 31. I will put my law on their hearts. I will write them on their minds. He's not saying literally, of course. He's not like gone into your brain and done brain surgery on you when you become a Christian. But what he's saying here. I will make my people want to serve me, not because it makes me happy, but because they love me already. I will make my people want to serve me. I will give them the power of a new affection. I will give them new motives. It won't be hard for them to give themselves to me. If you're a Christian, you've experienced some, something of that. You have to have had something of that where you say, I love you, Lord. I want to do something. You've had to have a taste of this. And yet, of course, you know the gap between the taste and the whole meal. You know it's one thing to taste something and nothing to have the whole meal. We don't have the whole meal in our life today. And so when you fail, if you fail, God gives a second promise. Verse 17. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. As you offer yourself to God. When you fail to do that, what are you to do? When you fail to live up to the glorious example of Christ. That he offered all that he is. What are you to do? 
You're not to look at your failure. You're not to look back at your sins. You are to look back at the cross. You're to look back at the cross because that's all that God wants to remember about you. That's all that God wants to remember about you. That's what he's looking back to. He's not remembering your sins. He's not remembering your law. He's not, you know, going over and over and over with them in his head like we do. He's not replaying that time you failed and you were a complete fool. He's not replaying that and you're replaying it. He's not replaying it. I will remember their sins no more. He's not replaying your failure. Instead, he forgets your disobedience. He helps you to obey. How could he do that? How could that ever be just? How could that ever be right? It is because we have been sanctified once for all through the offering of the body of Christ. How could you ever think that you have to make God love you after he's given all this for you? And why would you ever not want to serve such a loving God and Father? who does not remember your sins. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you have given us a better way. You've given us the reality and not the shadow. You have not called us to keep killing goats and bulls and giving money and trying our hardest. You have called us instead to look. You have called us to hear by faith. You've called us to see your salvation in Jesus Christ and to believe. And as we do so, as we do so, Father, you've said, I will remember our sins no more. I pray that that would mark us this week as we strive to give like Christ, not to please you, not to make you happy, but out of your happiness with us. And we do pray this in the name of that great sacrifice, the one who intercedes for us even now, Jesus Christ. Amen.